What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Welcome back, my friends. I'm super excited for this episode, and I kind of am for every episode, right? (laughs) This isn't a new intro for you guys to hear, but I really do love passing the mic to my guests, and that is no different this week with my guest, Kim Curry. What a really fantastic guy and story and professional, and I really think you're going to love this one. Kim Curry is a 33-year radio broadcaster slash programmer forced into retirement after a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. There are mental aspects of being the type of person people clamor to get next to, and suddenly, because of his cane, crutches, and wheelchair, people move away as quickly as possible. With the support of his loving wife, a natural drive for success, and the magic of modern medicine, he has found a new place in life. And we dive into that. We dive into his initial symptoms of multiple sclerosis amidst a very busy but successful career in radio. And he shares some really amazing stories to describe and highlight some of the perspective shifts and journey and insights he's had along the way. So I think you'll really appreciate this one. And I have him sign us off at the end in his amazing radio voice. So enjoy Kim Curry. Okay, I'm so excited to be here with Kim Curry. I actually reached out to him to see if he would come and share his journey, and he graciously agreed. So really excited, Uh, very fascinating and interesting points to this journey, and I'm excited to dive in. So thanks for being with us today, Kim. Good morning, Claudia. How are you this morning? I'm fantastic. So glad to spend it with you right now. So My pleasure. Appreciate you asking me on. Absolutely. All right. Well, as we always start, before we dive into your story, we're going to just ask, what does true wellness mean to you? True wellness, what does it mean to me? You know, when you think about it, 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 life in general has to go from sunup until sundown every day you're here. And I think true wellness means that when you get up in the morning, your heart is clean, your heart is fresh, your direction is right and you spend the day doing the things that you know that you need to do to nourish yourself. And then at night when you go to bed, uh, you feel once again that you've accomplished the peace that you need to have. Uh, I'm, I'm really into mind control, the controlling of my mind. Um, my experience with MS kind of pushed me that way. I needed to be able to, to, to be positive at times in my life when things are pretty desperate. So true wellness means be straight in mind, be good in heart, and wake up in the morning and go to bed at night feeling the same way. 
Hmm. I love that. I love how you put that. I love a heart that is clean and fresh. So thank you for that beautiful description. All right, let's dive in. I know that there is a lengthy background here. So in no way am I asking you to try to encapsulate your entire book. And we will share the book with the listeners, of course, um, to encapsulate that in this time period. But if you could just kind of give us a little bit about your background, your professional endeavors, and your subsequent health journey. Yes, ma'am. Well, Claudia, I am a, a radio baby. My um, my father uh, was a radio guy. First, he retired from the uh, from the Navy after 20 years, and we ended up here in Colorado. And he was a Navy recruiter in Pueblo, Colorado, when I was I don't know maybe five, six, seven, eight years old. And then at 10, he retired and moved to a little town called Canyon City, Colorado, where my dad, because he was retired, had a variety of different jobs. And for some reason he ended up at the radio station in town and there was only one radio station. Um, it was interesting in that, that he came home one day and asked me if I would go babysit at the radio station. And I thought that he wanted me to babysit the owners or the general manager's kids. Mm -hmm. And the truth was he wanted me to babysit the Sunday morning God show. They do a series of recordings every Sunday morning of the past week's services in churches. And they ran them every Sunday morning. Uh, no one wanted that job, so they hired a high school kid. So what I thought was going to be a babysitting kids thing ended up being a babysitting that particular show. Now, the first time I heard my voice on the radio, I can even remember the exact words I said, because we had a, a staged ID. It said, this is KRLN, Canyon City, Colorado, the station with the news reputation. Now, when you've got headphones on and you're 17 years old and you hear that, it's like, ah! wow, this is going to be fun. So I got started in radio because my dad got me there, ended up in uh, Southern, Southern Colorado State College, which now is the University of Southern Colorado, uh, and then became Colorado State University. I'm sorry, we went from University of Southern Colorado to Colorado State University. Spent a few years there, ended up in Knoxville, Tennessee at my first full-time job, and six months after I got there, I was discovered by what we consider in the radio business to be a genius, uh, Jerry Clifton. Um, he brought me down to Miami when I was 22 years old, and that was the beginning of 25 years of my career that really uh, marked my whole life, my whole radio career. Uh, Jerry uh, was really innovative in that he didn't think that radio stations needed disc jockeys with big, deep voices, because back in the 70s, that's what you got. But Kid Curry, that was my name on the radio, uh, what sounded like a little kid. So he brought this little kid on the radio at night in Miami, and it, it worked out real well for me. Uh, and there was only one Kid Curry on the radio in America for like 30 years. So when you thought of that name, it was me you thought of. Uh, so I ended up in Miami uh, working for him. Uh, he ended up a year after I got there, though, and got dismissed. He got fired because of a contest that the radio station had done. So I ended up across the street. Uh, there's another radio legend that we talk about. His name is Bill Tanner. So within the first year of my radio career, my first full-time job, I'd worked for two legends in the radio business. Now, I was a young radio guy. I really didn't know who I was working for. But the education I got from those guys spanned 25 years of a great radio career. Um, I ended up leaving there, Miami, for a while and going to San Antonio and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland. 
all three of the, 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 the stations I worked at are legendary stations in each market, KTSA in San Antonio, Wash FM in Washington, D.C., and B104 in Baltimore. But I always ended up back in Miami because Miami, I guess, is, is, is where it started for me. It's where I wanted to be as my career continued. And then eventually I became the program director of the original radio station I went to work for there. Um, I became the guy in 1996 who decided what the radio station was going to do. Uh, and it became very successful. Not that it had anything really to do with me. I was handed a plate full of legends. I always referred to it as, I just happened to be the different conductor of the orchestra. I was handed an orchestra and I conducted it differently. And the station had huge ratings and did very well for nine years. Now, throughout my life, multiple sclerosis, what I didn't know what it was, but it kept appearing in my life. I just thought it was stress attacks. Um, maybe I had the flu real bad. Um, one time in particular, once it's in my book, a story I talk about in my book, when I was in Washington, D.C., I used to do a feature on my radio show called The Bed Check. Now, because I was on the radio from 6 until 10 p.m. at night talking to the little kids, I did this feature called bed check and little kids used to call in and talk about their schoolmates, make a joke about a teacher. But when I got to Washington DC, I did this feature and it ended up becoming political, surprisingly enough. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I kept getting political phone calls, people from different parties, both parties would be calling and, and starting to attack the other party. And it became quite humorous to me. Um, so I had to kind of balance it out with little kids and then some of the fun from humor uh, from adults and politics. But there was a guy who kept calling in at night and he called himself Frank DeFramer. And he'd say, well, I'm over here at the White House right now and I've got President Reagan in the room and he, he, he's listening to the bed check. And I would laugh and think he's made that up. That can't be a true story. Well, I took him off the radio one night and picked up the telephone and said, so who are you? And what is this story you keep telling? He says, well, I'm actually the framer of portraits at the White House. And he really was. Someone has to frame and, and take care of all the portraits at the White House. And his name was Frank, and they called him Frank the Framer. So he was a real guy. Time goes by. A girlfriend has her mother, her grandmother come visit and uh, the grandmother wanted to go to the White House and, and visit Frank DeFramer. So I called him and I asked him if I could come over for a tour. And he said, sure, uh, just let them know when you get here that, that you're here to see Frank DeFramer, just come on in. So this was right after Reagan's assassination attempt. The access to the White House had not really changed that much. And when I got there, I had me and my girlfriend in the front seat and grandma in the back seat. And I'm driving around the White House and, and I saw a road that looked to me like it went right up next to the building. So I took that road. And as I'm driving up, um, as you can probably tell, the Secret Service was surprised anyone was driving up that road and they started coming at the car with their guns pulled. Well, stress is a trigger of multiple sclerosis. That was a stress point. And suddenly my, my left, my right eye started going, I couldn't see out of it. My right shoulder started having a problem. Uh, I, my, I started hyperventilating. And as I stopped the car and I went to go get out of the car, I went to, I was gonna go out and say, hello, I'm here to see Frank DeFramer. And as I stepped out, my body just seized. This was an MS experience that I had never 
I didn't know what it was, but it was certainly affecting me as I rolled up to the side of the White House to see Frank DeFramer. And all I eventually, I told the guy who, the, the gentleman who I was there to see, and um, they took us into the White House and I, I got my tour and grandma got her tour, but that was an exacerbation. That happened to me a few times in my life. But now, right around 2004, around Christmas, I was home visiting my mother with my family and she said, you don't look right. There's something wrong with you. And at the time I was having uh, vision problems out of my right eye to the point to where it was drooping. And my hand was starting to look deformed. And she was right. I had just been avoiding it. So when I got back from my Christmas vacation to Miami, um, I went to the doctor and about three months later I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Now, it was coming on really strong at that time, Claudia, um, to the point to where within a matter of a month or so, I, I could not walk straight. I was having serious pains in my spine and my, I was having pains in my brain. And after all of the tests, they just, the doctor decided it was multiple sclerosis. And because of what was happening, I, I was, you know, a real... Um, I don't know, type A personality as a program director of a radio station. It's all I thought of until I got MS and I stopped thinking about the radio station. And I knew it was time that I had to get off the radio, had to get out of the business uh, so that the radio station could continue and I could figure out what was going on with me. So in 2005, I retired from the business and my wife and I began our journey with multiple sclerosis. So, uh, that's kind of like the big, long elevator story of my life. That's a fantastic encapsulation. And there's even more amazing details in your book. So let's get to that. Your book is called Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through. So before we kind of dive into that and, and um, you know, dive deeper into the details, I'm initially fascinated to learn about your why behind this title. You kind of share it in the book, but for the listeners who are wondering what come get me mother I'm through means, can you share that? Okay. So as I said, back in the seventies, radio DJs all had big, deep voices, but suddenly hmm. appears this guy named Kid Curry. And I was on the radio at night, specifically there for the high school kids. And I, as I said, I did this feature called Bed Check. And kids would call in with jokes and things. And at the very end, I'd finish up and I'd say, okay, have a good night. Come get me, mother. I'm through. Giving the impression, of course, that this little kid on the radio, that their mom is going to come and, and, and pick him up when work was over. And for some reason, you know, it's funny that you bring this up. Within the last two months, you know, Facebook is a funny thing. A, a guy who ended up competing against me in Miami. His name is Tom Kent. Uh, when I was young, going off to my first full-time job in Knoxville, he was in Memphis. And there was a guy on the radio that used to say, come get me, mother, I'm through. And he brought this up just within the last couple of months. He said, so is that your line or was that this guy's line? And I could only tell him that because I was the young radio guy, I was going to my first full-time job. You know what? That What probably happened is I was driving through Memphis on my way to Knoxville, and I heard that guy say that, and it stuck in my head. So that's probably where the line came from. But that's how I ended my show every night for many, many years. And so I just used that as the title. It just seemed to me to be a catchy title. So that's how it happened. 
So I, um, I absolutely love the title. It definitely sparks curiosity. And I love that you share that because I think that people, um, you know, want to know more, but that gives them just a little bit of a, a teaser to, to read more. And it and really Claudia, is. If I can just for a second, you know, I, I need to explain the name. I haven't really done that. If you've read the book, you understand the yeah. name. But, um, in reality, my name is Kim Brell, Kimbrell Curry. Now, my mother grew up telling me that the name Kimbrell, K-I-M-B-R-E-L, was the male version of Kimberly. But in reality, it was a family last name. So I got the name Kimbrell Curry. I grew up my whole life never hearing of another guy named Kimbrell, by the way, <laughs> um, which is true. So when, I got, so when I got on the radio back in the 1970s, you couldn't call a guy Kim. It was really unusual back in the 70s for a man to be named Kim. So every radio station I went to, they changed my name, except for the first one, which was the small little town where it was the, it was the only station in town and my daddy worked there. So they let me call myself Kim there. But the next station I went to, uh, the program director wasn't going to have me be called Kim. So I was in the studio with him one day and he picked up the song, The Monster Mash by um, uh, what's his name? Bor Boris, Boris Pickett, whatever his name was. Well, it was written by a guy by the name of Gary Paxton. So he picked up the record and he said, it said the Monster Mash. And he said, okay, it was written by Gary Paxton. That'll be your radio name. So my first radio name was Gary Paxton. And that was in, in college and it was part-time on the radio on the weekends. So I get my first full-time job and I'm driving across the country to Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm going to be on the radio at night at 10 p.m. And I thought, well, I need to come up with a new radio name because Gary Paxton just wasn't going wasn't gonna to do it. It wasn't famous enough for me because back in the 70s, you had Wolfman Jack, you had Greaseman, you had the Boogeyman, you had Dr. Brock, the ugliest jock in rock. You had all sorts of guys with funny names. So I came up with a funny name for myself at 10 p.m. I thought I'd call myself Night Smoke. So as I'm driving across the country, I'm thinking, Night Smoke, that's the name I'll use. So I drive up to the radio station, Knoxville, the first station, my first full-time job. And I remember this vividly. I'm walking up the stairs and there's, it's a glass window I see. And I open the door and there's a woman at the receptionist desk. And behind her is a guy with a Hawaiian shirt on and curly hair. And he's a big, big guy. And I reached out to the receptionist lady and I said, hello, I'm your new nighttime jock, ma'am. My name is Night Smoke. And the guy behind her says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. <laughs> well, because my name Kim Curry, nobody ever called me that in, in, when I was in high school and grade school. They called me Casey because my mom didn't want me to be abused. And they also would make a joke and say, well, he's Kid Curry, because if you know Western history, you had Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was Kid Curry and Hannibal Hayes. He was an old time fictional uh, bank robber. So my friends would call me Kid Curry and I didn't like that name. So when the big guy behind her says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry, I said, ah, I hate that <laughs> name. He says, well, then I won't sign your check. <laughs> well, Kid Curry it is. <laughs> so that's how I got the name. And it, it was just a fluke, but it was the smartest thing I ever did because, as I said, for more than 30 years, there was only one Kid Curry ever on the radio. You knew who you were talking about, and I don't even think there's one on there now. So it was a real lucky thing for me, and it was just that one moment where I said, I hate that name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to sign your check. You're in, buddy. 
I love that story. I remember reading it and, um, and I was thinking to myself, um, I like Kid Curry. I think that's a fabulous name. I mean, no offense to, to Night Smoke, but I think, I think Kid Curry is perfect. It totally sounds like it would be a DJ's name. So uh, good call on, on letting that ride and letting it go in the name of a paycheck because that, that certainly worked out. So Well, my voice certainly sounded like a kid. So the guy knew something. <laughs> he <figured laughs> right. it out and I just hadn't thought of it. So. Yeah, sometimes we just we have to trust those in the know. So uh, you, yes, did, you did the right thing. Well, you kind of alluded already a little bit to how some of the symptoms of MS started to show up in your life. I'm curious as to as you reflected back once the diagnosis sort of arrived in your lap, what how long do you think that some of the symptoms and red flags had been popping up and were just vague enough to be able to be excusable by other things like stress and fatigue? Well, stress, as I said, is a real is a real kicker, and 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 stress in my life uh, caused things like my right hand to become deformed, to just curl up, um, and I mean stress. Now, what do I mean by stress? Okay, now being a radio DJ may not sound like much of a job, but back in the day when it was a real job and we used to make a lot of money to do it. Uh, it was full time. Wake up in the morning, check out every newspaper that was out there. Uh, then you read the USA Today. Uh, then you, you started to plan your show. You had to sit down and write all the songs out and make sure the commercials were in the right place and make sure you were talking to the right promotion. And so it was a very stressful job. And I took it very seriously for many, many years. So sometimes I would be just working to the point to where I'd been you know, 48, 72 hours without any sleep. And then my left leg would start to go or my right shoulder would start to hang. So, but then it would just go away. It really got worse though in 2004 to 2005. And then when that happens, you know, I got to tell, I was just, I write a lot because that's my new thing now. Um, I was just writing a, uh, coming up with a new thing about patience, about the patience I had to learn to have. Uh, you know, when I got started in radio, I had two, two turntables, uh, one on each side. And, and I used to have to get the record on the turntable and get it set to go and then get the commercials ready and then make sure the next song was ready to go all within three minutes and things happened fast. And as I became a program director, as I started running radio stations, if I needed something to get done, if I woke up in the morning and saw something in the paper that we needed to promote, I needed to get a promo done, I needed to get you know money made or needed to get money uh, uh, put aside so I could do these promotions, these things happened fast. But then when MS happened, screech, nothing happened fast. What do you mean it's going to take me a week to see that doctor? What do you mean it's going to take me a week before I can take that test? What do you mean it's going to take a week before I get the results? It was just, it was really hard on me because I'm not used to that. I want to get things fixed. And then, you know, as I'm degrading physically and they're trying to figure out, my doctors are trying to figure out what medicines to give me to try to slow down the progression. You know, I'm taking something that's going on for like two or three years and I'm taking injections every day. And my wife is the one who does the injections. She's given me every injection since the, since the second one. The first one was given to me by a high school friend who was a nurse in my hometown because my wife needed to see how it was done. But since then, my wife has given me probably over 10,000 shots. But for the first few years, I kept going down, 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 and the medicine wasn't working. But it was when, you know, 
I really believe in modern science. Uh, my doctor, Dr. Alan Bowling, has this uh, book out called Optimal Health with Multiple Sclerosis. And when he's got a real thought about vitamin D, humans need vitamin D. But for some reason, multiple sclerosis patients have a, have a less value of vitamin D in their system, and they need it more. Um, so he changed my medicine. After wearing about, I don't know, four or five years or so with this medicine called Rebif, and I'm getting a shot every day, he decides, well, we got to change this. So he gives me a different medicine. And then he says, I believe you need to take massive amounts of vitamin D because something is going to, he's researched something. He's got a belief that the vitamin D helps the MS patient on the right medicine and the right medicine hit. I'm taking like, I don't know, 500, 600 IUs of vitamin D every day. And over a couple of year period, things started slowly leveling off and I, I wasn't doing as badly. But I can tell you that until that happened, I was at a total loss because I'm not the kind of guy that expects things to happen in two weeks. I want things to happen now. So it was, and my wife refers to that time after being diagnosed as our snow globe moment, um, you know, because every, my wife was, you know, the, the date on my arm at the Grammys for years. And, uh, you know, her husband ran the biggest radio station in Miami. Everything was going pretty well for us. And suddenly everything changed. Our snow globe got shook and we had to come up with a whole new life. So while I'm going through all of this with me, my wife is trying to figure out what we're going to do as a family. She saved me because she's my full-time caregiver and has never stepped back from anything. She's the one who gets me all the best doctors and all the best crutches and wheelchairs and hand control systems for my car. But she also had to come up with a whole new thing for our, our income. I mean, we, we decided to take the money that we had at the time and do some fixing and flipping like that um, and did a few houses and enjoyed it. But she didn't like the way she was being treated by real estate people. And so she thought that, you know, I could learn how to do this. And she did. And uh, then she ended up two or three years later breaking state records uh, in real estate. And then she got so good at it that she became a consultant to other people to sell on how to sell houses. Then she got so good at it, you couldn't be one of her clients unless you sold 100 houses every year. And now my wife is an international business coach. Uh, and so, you know, we've had a whole different thing happen to us, but it has, you know, sometimes people like me who, who have things like this happen to them will tell you that it's the best thing that ever happened to me. It really is. Uh, I didn't realize what I was doing, how hard I was working, and the things I was having to eliminate from life that I shouldn't have been eliminating because of the job I was doing. I mean, I was letting things go by that I shouldn't let go by. I was focusing on the wrong things in life. Uh, so when the MS happened and everything comes to a screeching halt, you have to reevaluate. And believe me, I've had plenty of time to sit back and reevaluate my life and look about, uh, look at the things that I've done and, and, and then, you know, because I've caused problems for some radio stations. I've been a, an aggressive person at times. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I now sit back and I look back at, at what I've done and, and I look at it as major accomplishments. Um, 
there are some people who feel that I was the most successful program director at that particular radio station in its history, and I believe that too. Um, but I now sit back and look at life in a much different way. My wife and I have a good thing going on. She's really good at what she does. She, she really lets me do what I want to do. And now that I'm a writer, it's all I do all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I self-publish, but I've got a book coming out here soon that I'm, I'm, I've pitched to some publishers and they're interested. So, you know, somebody has to let me play my game and it's been my wife. <laughs> so that's, I've been real lucky. She sounds amazing. And I'm assuming the audience is going to agree after listening to that. She definitely sounds like an amazing soul and kudos to her for giving you all of your injections and, and through it all, figuring out the financial piece and now becoming an international business coach. And I mean, she just, she sounds like a, a somebody I need to have on the podcast at some point. <laughs> you know what? It's funny that that happens often. People will have me on and go, wait a minute, I need to talk to your wife. <laughs> and it's okay though, because, you know, well, I, during, you know, we're, we're at a year now uh, since the pandemic broke. Uh, a year ago, right now, people were losing their jobs. Uh, life was coming to a screeching halt everywhere. But my wife, never missed a day of work starting at seven o'clock in the morning until five o'clock every afternoon, 30 minutes with a different client all day long because the business community knew where we were going and they knew they had to come back from all of this. So while everything was stopping, my wife was coaching people on how to get through this, how we're going to change, how, how the systems are going to change, how we need to look at, at real estate at the, at the time. And uh, so while, while life was, was different a year ago, my wife was in full gear, running down the street, helping people. And uh, so she's a real unique person. You know, I'm, I, I was lucky when I found her. Mm, yes, absolutely. I think we definitely are, are given the people that we need in our lives. And she sounds like she has been an amazing support. So that's fantastic. I would love to dive into a few things that you said, um, really kind of bigger topics that I would like to dive into. First is you mentioned the distinct difference between the sort of efficiency and rapid pace of the radio world and the sort of what seems to be a snail pace of the medical world. I would love to know your insights into, you know, being somebody who didn't necessarily have a whole lot of experience just being otherwise healthy with the healthcare system and now being thrust into requiring them and needing them for answers. What were some of your experiences, sort of shocking insights uh, into the world of healthcare? Because for me, I loved reading your book. I don't know anything about the radio world. And so this was really interesting for me. And so on, you know, from being on the healthcare side, I would love to know what your experience was like and what some of the pieces that were more shocking were to you. Well, I think what, first of all, my wife, <laughs> here I go again, my <laughs> wife drove the car through all of this. Um, you know, she, she decided that she was going to find the best doctors, uh, the best rehab centers. I had the best cane. Then when I moved on to crutches, I had the best crutches. I've had the best wheelchairs. Um, but what you end up realizing is, you know, you only given so much from your insurance company. Everything else has to come out of your pocket. Um, 
you know, my insurance company grants me the wheelchair I'm sitting in right now. It's a motorized wheelchair. I drive around my house in it. But in order to get out of my, to get from here to my garage, I had to buy a lift, a, 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 a lift that takes me up from the first floor uh, down to the second floor, I mean, to the, to the basement, to the garage, so I can get in the car. And that's an out-of-pocket expense. Uh, my, my MS is such that I seize, my muscles seize, but I take massive amounts of a drug called baclofen. So I can, I can drive my car with my hands. So my wife and I decided after a while, and the doctor said it was okay, that if I could get back into the car, I could do so, but I'd have to go get hand controls to do so. Well, um, first of all, there's very few hospitals in America who are even qualified to teach you how to do that. Fortunately, there was one or two here in Colorado. I found one in Colorado Springs. I uh, went there. Uh, you have to pay for those lessons. And there were three of them. That was, I think it was $2,500 just to be able to go get approved to be able to drive with your hands. And that's using someone else's equipment. And then I had to go buy my own equipment. And then I had to have that equipment installed. And then after that happened, I had to go back to the original lady and have her approve me being able to use these hand controls. Now, doing all of this, I was not licensed by the state. So had I been pulled over, I would have been in massive trouble. But there's no other way to do this. You have to do it like this. So you spend all that money. And then I talk about patience. Um, you know, I got the, the, the hand controls installed in my, in my car, and because of where I was in Canyon City, a very small little town, they didn't test for hand controls. So when I went there after waiting 20 minutes in the office to be tested, they told me, well, we don't do that here. You'll need to go 30 miles away to Pueblo. So the next day, I got in my car and drove 30 miles away to Pueblo, Colorado, to be approved to drive with my hand controls, driving over to Pueblo <laughs> to be approved, licensed with my hand controls. So I get there and I, I get out of my car and I roll my wheelchair up to the lady at the desk and I say, I'm here to be approved for hand controls. And she looks at me and doesn't know how to answer because nobody ever goes to DMV to get approved for hand controls. So she says, you'll need to come back next week because we don't have anybody certified to do that. So I drove home patience, patience. I come back the next week and they still didn't have anybody. I had to drive home again. Patience, mm -hmm. patience. Come back the next week. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, you know, I go in, they give me a lady. She's going to approve me for these hand controls. So I get in my car and I've got the radio on. It's on a radio station that I was the boss of four or five years before that. And she says, oh, you don't need to turn that down. That's my favorite station. And I said, oh, I used to be the boss there. And she said, my uncle works there. Give me that piece of paper. And she signed it without even having me drive with the hand controls. <laughs> so patience, patience. You have to learn it. So it's been an incredible ride. But you have to put your pants on every day, although my wife has to help me, um, and you have to go through it and you have to figure out how to do it. And that's one thing I've, I've just learned how to deal with. You know, you just have to, I have to get out of bed. I have to be able to move around. So you just decide you're going to do it and you do it. Did I get way off of your question? I'm sure I did. <laughs>
No, I think I, you're a great storyteller. And I think their stories definitely tell a lot more than if we were to just talk in a very factual manner. But you, I mean, <laughs> the stories say it all. And that's, a, you know, even though the DMV may not necessarily be the physician's clinic, it talks, it really kind of paints the picture of what goes on when you're dealing with multiple parts of trying to have a functioning life and how patients, I mean, and you already talked about how, you know, with doctor's appointments and testing, and it's, it's not nearly as fast and efficient as the world that you were used to in radio. So you can certainly imagine that not everyone can afford what I can afford. That's why you see guys driving down the street in their wheelchairs to doctor appointments. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's sad. (laughs) you know being the country who we are don't get me started (laughs) (laughs) yes um i i agree it really it really it is and you're right i mean we you know i think about how i was able to help my dad and all the frustrations i went through and i think but i had all of the background knowledge what are people doing who don't have the knowledge and, and are thrust into this system and you know similarly you are having to figure out financially how to put pieces together, but you had some, you know, part, you had the means to do that, which is fantastic. And what are people doing who, who don't have the means and don't have the knowledge of the healthcare system? And I, I completely understand. And we could absolutely, we could, we could definitely talk about that for quite a while, but I think it's important to, to point that out as we, we dive further. And, and it's just made me just, I guess I'm the Teflon guy now. Um, I don't think anything bothers me anymore. <laughs> I've learned to just, Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm back. Oh, okay. No problem. So, you know, I, it's, it's part of who I've become. It's, I'm now a much more patient person because of what's happened to me. I'm a better person because of multiple sclerosis. And I'm talking to you now as my legs seize. You know, I tell you that stress is a thing here. Uh, even the discussion of what goes on in my life has caused my legs. They're sticking straight out right now because of the adrenaline that's running and the way that my body now lives with MS. So, Mm. you know, I'm just, that's me right now. It makes me want to meditate so we can, we can bring the stress level down. I hope I'm not contributing to that, but I do understand how, how, yeah, you're reliving a lot of these parts by, by sharing your story, which as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm really just so grateful to people like yourself who who are willing to share that with us because it's in sharing that we, we learn a lot about things that we don't know and become wiser. So I appreciate you doing that despite. See that nice little moment there made my legs go down. Oh, Very good. see, Thank I you. didn't even need to, we can, I, I didn't even need to guide a meditation, but I am happy to do that too. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, you talk, you, you actually talked quite a bit about this. And so there may not be a whole lot more to add to it, but I wanted to read a part of your book um, talking about perspective, which again has been sort of a thread and theme throughout this interview. In the book, you say, For 33 years, my every waking minute, every hour of every day had centered around my radio show or the radio station I was programming. This obsession had taken the front seat of my life, even to the detriment of a couple of marriages, and then suddenly it vanished. Now I wasn't worried what the DJs were saying, whether the promos were running, or if the music was rotating correctly. In a matter of a few days, I had stopped caring about the passion of my life. And I know you've talked a little bit already about some of the perspective shifts, but I'm just wondering if there's anything else as you look back to where you were then and where you are now, what some of those perspective shifts that maybe you haven't already mentioned have been? Wow. I I haven't, uh, I don't open my book very often. (laughs) I forgot I wrote that. That was pretty good. Um, (laughs) 
Well, you know, you know, I, I think the passion that I had that my father gave me, I just had to transfer that into my new thing. Uh, you know, because I, I spent a lot of time from the time I got diagnosed till about eight years afterwards, really only thinking about multiple sclerosis and the effect it was having on me and how I was dealing with it. And then a friend, um, there's, you know, the, you see the, the Grammys, you see the people that get the awards at the Grammys, they wouldn't get those awards unless there were, people were putting those songs on radio stations. There's a group of people out there that are responsible for getting Taylor Swift songs on the radio, um, for getting the weekend songs on the radio, even, you know, for getting Tony Bennett songs on the radio. Uh, there's a promotion staff out there that does that. They're a hidden crew, but there was one guy in the business, his name was Vince Pellegrino. And I don't know, 30 years ago, he decided those people should get some recognition. So he started having an award ceremony every year. And he had a magazine called the Street Information Network. Well, it had become a legendary award ceremony because those guys work very hard. And in reality, no one knows who they are. So this big ceremony became a big deal. And I had never attended. And it had been, you know, eight, 10 years since I'd even thought about going to a convention like that. But one day Vince called me at my house and he said, you know, I think you disappeared from the business too quick. Um, we haven't heard from you. I think you need to come to my award ceremony here in New York. I'll fly you and your family out because I think you need a lifetime achievement award. And that really got me. I mean, after being ripped out of my, my career and then sitting back and watching what was going on with me and then having a friend say, hey, wait a minute. And so then when I got out to New York um, and went to the ceremony, to the party that night, uh, I got to see Vince before, before the whole thing, just for a couple of minutes. He and I have been friends for years, but I got to see him just before the ceremony began, the awards began. And he was dressed in a big overcoat because it was summer. I mean, I'm sorry, it was Thanksgiving time. The, you know, downtown New York was beautiful. And so he was dressed up in a big winter coat and a hat and he had a scarf on. And he didn't look much different to me. Um, but then we go through the award ceremony and everything. He brings me on stage and I have people that I haven't seen for, you know, 10 years, friends I'd known for 30 were standing in front of me, everybody applauding. I was crying. It was wonderful. My wife, my kid were there. And, and I didn't get to see him even that night. I mean, I, they, they put me off into a table. Everybody came by. They wanted to talk to me, give me hugs and things like that. And so somebody said, Vince is going to come over tomorrow morning to the hotel and he's going to have breakfast with you. So the next morning, Vince shows up for breakfast uh, to inform me that he was really sick and that he didn't know how much longer he had and that he didn't want me sitting around anymore. He said, you've got to have some value. You are very valuable to the business. You need to come up with something. And then, you know, I, in my mind, I'm like, oh man, if he's going to have to shut down the magazine, maybe I can help run the magazine or I can help that move along, or maybe I could get back in the radio business or maybe back in the music. But, you know, I got home from that trip and quickly realized that, that, you know, this business changes every six months. There's nothing I, I had of any value at a radio station. I certainly couldn't run his magazine. 
and the music industry doesn't want anything to do with me. So I kind of felt like I needed to come up with a way to pay homage to Vince. Uh, he passed away like a month and a half, two months after the, the, the award ceremony. And so what I wanted to do was tell my story and then weave Vince's story into my story. So you'll see in this book that, you, that you're reading that you hear about my career, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly this thing that happened in New York City appears. And, and what that did was it made me decide that I was going to have to do something else. And it couldn't be in the music and radio business. It had to be something else. I wanted to become a writer. I wanted to tell this story. So I went out and I hired uh, the lady here who founded the Northern Colorado Writers Association. She became my writer's coach. Uh, we work together. As a matter of fact, we're getting together at 10 o'clock this morning because I'm working on my third book. She taught me how to write so I could write my story. So the, gener the, 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 the energy I was, that was making the driving Kim Kid Curry back when I was on the radio now drives Kim Curry, the author. So I've kind of had to transpose that over, but um, I'm happy with that because I like the writing thing. I like the creativity. I like getting stuck and not having anything for days come to my brain and suddenly poof, it all happens. Um, and I've been real lucky. I've got, you know, two books out there. My second book, The Death of Fairness, is basically, a, you know, it's, it's a historic fiction book because it pertains to something that Ronald Reagan did in 1987. He rescinded what they call the Fairness Doctrine, which required equal time for contrasting points of view. Now, when you take that out, you basically make lies legal without debate. 34 years later, see where we are in America today. So again, I get real passionate about this too. So is it time for meditation again? <laughs> Should I break into meditation? No, I, um, I do. I do love that there still is this deep passion for many topics within you. And I love that every time I ask a question, you immediately have a story to highlight your thoughts around it. And that's, that, that just means you're a good storyteller. And that's exactly why you should continue to write because that's, that's fantastic. So I, I love that. It's not common that, that people immediately go into storytelling, but I love that that's what you do. And that's probably just, you know, part of, part of what you did also on the radio and, you know, kind of diving also into what you briefly mentioned, you say in your book that one thing is sure in radio and that is change. And you just mentioned that briefly as well. Do you think that the impermanent nature of the industry played, um, a, a, you know, any role in your ability to accept and navigate this ever changing nature of your health status now? Well, what happened in, in the broadcasting business in 1996, corporations basically took over. You, you suddenly found one company buying up all the radio stations, and you went from hundreds of owners in radio. After 1996, you got down to about maybe we have four, five now. So the homogenization of radio uh, started in 1996. Fortunately, I got to fight it off until 2005 at my radio station. The company I was working for let me run the radio station. In Miami, uh, I ran it for Miami, and it sounded like Miami. But what happens when the homogenization, after one corporation takes over, they all end up sounding the same. And so I couldn't do that. I couldn't work for people who wouldn't let me be 100% creative because the people that made me did that. They were 100% creative. 
So in order to, to be successful in my mind, I would have needed to be able to control it. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to. It would have stressed me. <laughs> my MS would have blown me up. So, um, you know, I, I, it, was, it, was a, it was a good time for me to get out. As I say, MS really saved me. And uh, it, it got me out at the right time. And Vince came around at the right time. My medicine change came around at the right time. Um, I, I live in a positive life. My wife and I, remember, my wife is a very positive business coach. There is no negativity in my house. We move forward all the time. Mm, I love that. I would love to um, talk to your wife at some point. She sounds like a fantastic woman. And what a, what a great pairing you both are. And it sounds like everything fell exactly into place as it needed to in your life. And I'm really so grateful that you took this time to share with us here and also sharing through the book, where can people find your story, your book, uh, some of your online presence? I'm just going to send you to krcurry.com. That's K-R-C-U-R-R-Y.com. That's my webpage. You can find all the information about my books there, uh, even about my upcoming book, which Within the next month, I'm going to get it to these publishers who are looking for it. So here's hoping I, you know, I, it's just like a, just another accomplishment. I just want to, I've, I've self-published. Now I just want to be published. Mm -hmm. So you'll find out all the information about the books there. You're also going to find some, some uh, of the other podcasts that I've done, like yours. I put those on my webpage. And I also do another thing called The View from My Wheelchair. Um, just commentary about uh, this month. I did a couple on MS Awareness Month, which is going on now. Uh, I do political things there sometimes. I'm very adamant about the 1987 Reagan decision to make lies legal without debate, which brought on all the calamity you see in America now, because you've had lies go on and no one's debated those lies since 1987. And that's why you have the division you have in America today. And you'll find all about that on my webpage, krcurry.com. Thank you so much for sharing this again, Kim. Um, I, I would love, and this may be a selfish request, but I would love for you to, to take us to the end of the podcast with uh, some type of a radio. Like, how do you end? I don't know. I feel your voice is so amazing. I feel like we should end in some radio uh, passionate way. So how could, how could you end us here? <laughs> Claudia, it's been a great time talking to you. And um, I want everybody to understand that you can have a lot of things go wrong in your life, but your mind control is most important. Figure out how to meditate, find that peace within your life. And then, uh, Go live a good one. Come get me, mother. I'm through. What a special episode with a special soul. Thank you again, Kim Curry, for sharing your journey and insights with us. This took on even a deeper meaning for me at the end there after he signed us off because it reminded me of how much my father loved radio and I immediately was connected with him at the end of that. So through my tears, thank you, Kim. Thank you listeners for continuing to stick with us as we mind our wellness. I'll see you here again next time.